Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders, co-sponsored by Luther Seminary's Faith Lead and Lead. Welcome to Pivot, where today's episode is on promising innovation. I'm Terry Elton from Luther Seminary. And I'm Scott Cormode from Fuller Seminary. And I'm Louise Johnson, and I work with Lead. So I spent the weekend doing some analysis of some research that we've done with leaders, which I'll say more about in a minute. But I loved one of the questions was on what are the promising innovations that you've been doing post into this pandemic? And so I thought that would be worth a good topic for us to discuss today. So let me frame that by telling a story and then talk about what innovation means and how it is different when we talk about it as Christian innovation. Think about, there's a woman named Gina. She is a computer programmer. She uh, has an office where she goes, well, once upon a time she did, where she sat in a cubicle. And in the cubicle next to her is a young man named Tran. This is his first job out of college. He's the child of immigrants. He's working long hours and he finds himself kind of lonely and isolated. And as in the process of what might be a relationship of friendship, Gina is able to talk to Tran about Jesus. She tells him about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and about the good news of the gospel. And let's say that what Tran does in response to this is to say, I like this guy, Jesus, but can we talk about Jesus without talking about death? And this is where secular innovation becomes different than Christian innovation. In the secular world, what they would do is they would tell you that you've done your market research and you found that there's a problem with your product. And so you needed to change your product. And so what we would, they would tell us is that you needed to come up with a way to explain the gospel or come up with some kind of new gospel that no longer involves death. The problem with that is we can never have a gospel that will not involve the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The incarnation is God's response to the human condition. Any any gospel that did not involve death would not actually deal with the pain that trans dealing with. We are in a completely different place as Christians. We cannot just simply invent a new gospel. So let me explain a little bit more about what Christian innovation is. I'll tell you about where this comes from. This is, I have a book that's coming out September 15th that is called The Innovative Church. That is the result of five years of working with congregations on innovation. And we talk about how innovation, Christian innovation is different than secular innovation. The difference is that we can never abandon the past. Secular innovation, they say the first thing you do is what they say, burn the boats, cut the ties. We'll never stop saying Jesus is Lord. We'll never stop uh, reading the Old Testament where it says, love your neighbor as yourself or let justice roll down. And yes, love your neighbor as yourself does come from the Old Testament. We have to find the best ways to appropriate the past. And so what ends up happening is Christian innovation is all about finding ways to connect. Well, let let me put it this way. The question at the heart of my book is, how do we maintain a rock-solid commitment to the unchanging Christian gospel and find innovative ways of presenting that gospel 
to an ever-changing culture. We might think of that as an unchanging gospel for an ever-changing culture. And we need to be able to find a way to do that because right now in this COVID moment, there is no other time that it would be difficult that I would need to explain to you that the world is changing faster than we can keep up. The first line of the book is the church as we know it is calibrated for a world that no longer exists. We all know that the world has changed. The world changed very recently. Now what do we do? That's going to require innovation. You know, Scott, that just rings really true with an experience I had last Tuesday. I did a webinar with pastors in southern Minnesota. And in that part of the country, there's a lot of ambiguity that pastors are navigating around gathering, around mask wearing, around tradition, and how to package their faith. And so as we were talking in this webinar about how to lean into the future and how to begin to move forward, even in the midst of all this complexity, one of the things that we talked about was making sure you have clarity on your identity. And we did a little presentation and then they went and had small groups and then came back. And what was a great line, a really uh, humble leader said, you know, I always think of that getting clear on your identity is something that you do when life is going well and you have time. And my good colleagues in my group reminded me that in the midst of a pandemic, when there's all kinds of this complexity, getting clear on your values and your mission and and your particular calling is actually the exact time to do that work. And it was like a light bulb went on. Kind of like what you were saying, Scott, some of us find it really easy to get caught up in all of the questions and the decisions that have to get made and forget that we actually, as the church, have a particular calling, that that part does not change. And to get clear on uh, the question of what will your gospel witness be? So we spent a lot of time wondering about that. And suddenly when the question could move from like, what does proclamation mean for your sermon to what does your gospel witness in absolutely everything that you do and have all that you are as a, as a congregation be witnessing to the gospel in this place and this time opened up some new ways of thinking. And for me, Scott, that was like bringing those two things together. It's the thread that connects us to the past and won't ever change. And it's the dynamic agility to the context and the times. So one of the questions that we asked is, what would it be to be a gospel witness to senior high kids going to school in this time? Or what would it be to be a gospel witness to parents that aren't sure if they're going to be homeschooling or working from home with their kids around or sending them off? There's a whole bunch of particularities in that moment that give life to that question. I love that um, you're both articulating this tension between what do we carry forward from the tradition and from the past 
And then how do we appropriate it or begin to think about that in the time that we're in? And so I, I always like to kind of look back in history because I think somehow the stories from the past are more palatable. And so I, I love the story of Galileo, right? So in the, Galileo grows up in a time where the world view is that, you know, the, the universe is geocentric, which is to say that the other planets and the sun revolve around the earth. And that was formulated and authorized and verified thinking both in astronomy and in politics, in the church. So it was, it showed up in theology. And in fact, if you go back and read the history of this, you can read about even scripture verses that allude and kind of draw on that. And so when Galileo comes along, and begins to um, work with both science, science and math to demonstrate that the universe is actually heliocentric. It literally reorders the worldview of all the people around him, and people react so strongly to that change, right? I mean, he really begins to present irrefutable evidence. But of course, that pushes up against the authority of the church, the authority of the government, the authority of scripture. And these are big pieces to call into question. And so Galileo, Galileo almost loses his head over all of this, because it was just easier to shut him up than it was to wrestle through what it was to really have their mental furniture rearranged. Of course, it happens too in scripture, right? So I'm reading through Luke right now. And in Luke's gospel, the Pharisees and the scribes, you know, they have a particular expectation and that it's not unfounded, right? That expectation appears in the prophetic writings and the, in the uh, Hebrew scriptures, right? They, they have an expectation that Jesus will come and take up the kingship and the throne of David. And in their mind, that looks like a military battle. And so when Jesus comes along and starts to take up with foreigners and ne'er-do-wells and tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and lepers and all kinds of uh, people who in their worldview are not the people who should be part of the kingdom, then they they start to get really grumpy and confused about who Jesus is and what he's doing. And, and they have a really hard time opening their minds and their imagination to who Jesus is and what new thing God is doing. And so I, that always pushes me when I'm thinking about this kind of innovation. And it makes me ask, what are the things that I am blind to? What are the things that I'm holding so fast to that I can't see the the new thing that God is doing. And I think it's just, it's, it's another part of that same question. How do we keep asking that of each other in, in places where we can, with great love and gentleness, push, push each other to be open to the new things that God is doing? So Louise, I think part of what you're asking is how do we know what needs to change and how do we know what cannot change? And I think about, there's a, a book, I don't need to tell you the, the, uh, about it. The subtitle of the book stayed with me for years. The subtitle of the book was, What Does the Church Have to Say That No One Else Can Say? And it's really about how do we connect our people, the, the suffering, the, the difficulty of life in the, as the world that we live in, to the gospel story of life, death, resurrection, and ongoing hope of Jesus Christ. And one of the ways we can do that is through Christian practices. 
There are some Christian practices that are what we would call constitutive practices, practices that constitute what it means to be Christian, that there's never been a time or a place where Christians did not pray or worship. And there are no, no, no Christians invent worship or invent prayer. What happens is you receive it from the tradition. You receive it from those who came before you. But over time, that changes. So think about the difference between worship and singing. There are lots of different ways to worship. And worship is constitutive what it means to be Christian. There is no such thing as Christianity without the worship of God. Singing is the form that we use nowadays in our worship. But there have been places where people did not sing or did not sing the way that we sing in order to express worship. So what we've figured out is that if we focus on particular practices, the practices that are so central that they constitute what it means to be Christian, then what we can do is say, how can those practices change over time in a way that allow us to imagine something that is new. So for example, you know, in the old world, meaning the world before March, location was part of worship. That what it meant to constitute worship was to gather people in a physical space and allow them to worship God together because that was part of what koinonia, the connection that we have together, that was how we sang together. All of those things were built around place. And now we have been separated. It turns out we can still worship God even though we are in different places. It felt wrong at first. It felt terribly wrong. It still feels wrong for many of us. But we can still worship God. And what we're learning from that is that we don't need to confuse the form of the practice with the practice itself. And that leads us to say that there are all sorts of promising innovations out there. Terry, tell us a little bit about how you got to the the five themes that you're going to tell us about, and then we can talk about them together. So what was really curious for us as a team at Luther Seminary was how do we listen to the people that we're in conversation with. And so in a way that's massive in this time when there's a lot of other things going on, we could just call everybody. So we sent out this survey, we got almost 800 people replying. And there's one question around promising innovation that had it by category. And then there was another open-ended one that said, tell us a story or give us more information about what your promising innovation is. So I got to dig deeply into that and 22% of our almost 800 people gave us information. So it was really fun. I felt like I got to listen in on a whole big group of leaders around the church, uh, lay leaders, pastors, as well as judicatory leaders from various denominations. So here's, we're going to just walk through the five uh, and we're going to give some other details. But the first one I want to offer is promising innovation is born out of need, urgency, and meaning. It was not a surprise that right out of the blocks, 80% of people moved to worship because that had a need for people. It was lent for all of us. But what was also interesting to me was caring ministries also was a great need, as well as the needs of the community. And I just want to give you a quick story. I loved this one. One of the congregations shared that they have a Good Samaritan Fund. 
It was normally a fund that was driven by the pastor. So if there were people that walked into their church that needed something, the pastor could just draw on that fund to give the needs to whoever that it was. But as the needs of the community grew, the congregation continued to give to that fund. And so that fund since Easter has grown to over $24,000 and 50 households have been recipients of it. It started with 4,000 and it, it grew in that amount of time. And that became a mechanism for the congregation to be responsive, to live out their calling in a time. And this is what they said. When we tell the congregation on Sunday that we had a waiting list of needs, every time they met that need, every time God provides, it became a moment of witnessing to the gospel in a responsive way that used something there and totally reframed it for this time in the place. What examples can you guys think of? One of the things that comes to mind is that we talk about need, urgency, and meaning, and its relationship to innovation. There's a professor at Harvard named Linda Hunt who did a study of innovative organizations. And one of the things that she found is that innovation can't be something that you do. It has to be the heart of who you are. If you think, well, you know, I've got a checklist of things to do, and one of them is to innovate, you'll never get anything innovative done. But if you see that the very heart of what we do has to be reinventing the gospel message so that this generation can hear it, then what will happen is it will become intrinsic to who you are. And one of the keys to that is what well, goes back to something that we've talked about a number of times in these podcasts, transformative listening. The idea of listening to the people entrusted to your care so that you yourself are transformed by empathy. And I think about, uh, I was doing a training with a particular congregation where I was teaching them about this idea of transformative listening. And uh, the senior pastor came and talked to me. He's a pastor of a church that was about a thousand members. It's now dwindled over the last five or 10 years to about six or 700. And um, that's why they were so interested in innovation. And he said to me, I'm very interested in this idea of transformative listening. I have people on the staff that are going to do that for us. And I said, well, I think you need to be doing that. He goes, no, no, no. You don't understand. That's not what I do. My job is to preach and to teach. I don't really have the patience to listen to people. I'm not a very good listener. It's better when I don't have to deal with people. And I said, but wait a second. One of the things we've talked about is that if you don't listen and if you're not transformed by hearing the needs of your people, then you will just treat your people as a stereotype. And I said, how do you write your sermons without making them into stereotypes? He said, well, I kind of know what the needs of people are, and I can write about it. In other words, he has a clear sense in his head of what people need, and he's not changing that anytime soon. That church will not innovate because he's not willing. There's no need. There's no urgency. There's no sense of, I need to constantly hear what my people are going through. And if there's no need or urgency to create meaning, then what will happen is they will offer the same message over and over and over again. 
Well, I think that really speaks to something I have been experiencing as I talk with and listen to church leaders. And that is, you know, perfectly understandably, right? We took the model of church that we had in um, January and February. And when March came along, we, we dumped it into a digital environment. But the problem with that, I think, is that we called it innovation. We kept talking about how churches are innovating left and right and doing all those kinds of things. And in a way, I understand why we got to that word. But I think what it's done has le- is that it's left a lot of church leaders feeling kind of empty, meaningless, right? And so this, this sense that meaning is tied to innovation, I think, is really key. Because I, I think, you know, you're on to something, Scott. Like, what would happen if we, in, instead of just now continuing to do what we've been doing, which is, you know, dumping this, all of our programs and worship into a digital environment. What if we went back to the drawing board and asked the kind of key questions about what is it that gives us meaning and what's the the center of our life of faith? And Terry, I love your question. What will our gospel witness be? What if we began to ask those kinds of questions? Because I think even though they're pretty overwhelming at the front end, I think those are actually the kinds of things that not only lead us to innovation, but they're life-giving. They lead us to something new that is life-giving, that is the work of the gospel in our midst. And so I, I just think that's such a key piece of beginning to understand what innovation really is and how it's connected to need and urgency and meaning. So the second theme that emerged was promising innovation translated church-led programs into distributed practices. And I think, Scott, this totally ties with what you said about the constituent practices that the it's not the forms, right? Programs are the forms, but it's getting back to what's in the underneath that, what's at the core of that program. To me, there's two shifts that have to take place in that. First of all, it's from centralized, the fact that all of it's led at the church or it happens at the church or it's led by the church staff to distributed, to helping people, empower people to do it at home, in their neighborhoods, at their in their work environments, whatever that is. And then it's a shift from programs to practices. One of the stories that resonates in my head, this didn't come from the survey, but I heard it at a conference that I was at online on on Monday, a pastor in the Minneapolis area, Tyler Sitt, he has a new congregation plant that has a really unique constituency. It actually reflects demographically the neighborhood of South Minneapolis. And so it has all kinds of different age groups, race demographics, and it has believers and people that don't profess to be Christian. And he and another pastor were talking on the uh, right after the George Floyd murder here in Minneapolis of how, how to respond with the community. And one of the things he said in this interview that just struck me was, we didn't want to just be a fleeting moment. We knew that this moment was going to come and go. But to be the church, if we have some steady practices, and if we bring in a practice and have meaning for it in this time, that practice is steady and it will last longer than this moment. And people, whether they're familiar with the church or not, can lean into that practice. So he and another pastor got together and had a service of lament, something we've talked about in this podcast over the series. 
And I was so taken by that wisdom. And I think it gets at the heart of what this is. Practices are portable. They're agile. They, they're things we can do with different communities. They can be led at different moments and we can lean into them. And it's doing jazz, if you will, on those practices and equipping people to be taking those practices. The third theme that came out of Promising Innovation is collaborative with shared leadership. And I'm just going to give one quick example and then invite you two to share. Caring for people was one of the top things that came out out of Promising Innovation. And that wasn't surprising. What stood out for me, which, which was really fun, was this, the way that congregations went from having a few people namely the pastor and maybe some staff caring for the pastoral needs to a collective sense of we will care for the whole of our needs. And so they set up systems, they invited different people into that process. And I loved the idea that the care of the community was not left to the professional, right? The paid person or the called person. It was our shared work, our collective And it came out of need, urgency, and meaning. And so I got to be wondering, what if we could see that same kind of ownership, that leadership shift in other areas like witnessing to the gospel was not just what the pastor did or what the staff did? Yeah, boy, I really love that. I think, you know, this particular one about collaboration in relationship to innovation is really a key question. I I worked for a long time in theological education, leadership development. And of course, you know, those systems and models are designed for a very particular kind of person. And all all along, I, I worked for a long time in seminary admissions, and I would meet all kinds of really gifted people, people who, by their own sense of who God was in the leading of the Holy Spirit, felt called to be proclaimers of the gospel witnesses to Jesus Christ. And in that way, they, they sought what it would look like to be a leader in the, in the institutional church. Others saw that, I saw it, experienced it, but they just were so far from what the systems expected of them. So, and sometimes that was educationally, culturally, uh, economically, in terms of their language, there were all kinds of things that, that sometimes got in the way of what it meant for them to uh, be able to step into those systems. So this uh, point about promising innovation makes me wonder what kind of new collaborators God is calling to the table. And, you know, I'm, I'm pretty open on this question, but even I get uncomfortable sometimes about the, the people I see who are bearing the fruit of the gospel, right? Who, who are preaching and teaching even without the authority and training of the church, but are bearing fruit in their lives and in the lives of others and in their communities. And it makes me, of course, be a little bit sympathetic <laughs> to the Pharisees, because I think the Pharisees are looking at the collaborators that Jesus chose, right? And they're fishermen and tax collectors and sinners. And they're wondering, you know, why on God's earth would you pick these people to be your core disciples? And so I'm curious and in some ways really excited to see what kind of new collaborators the Holy Spirit is calling together to work with us to be witnesses to the gospel. The fourth theme of Promising Innovation was that it capitalized on previous decisions, capacities, and experiments. 
this gets at, there's a through line, there's a Christian narrative, there's a history that we're connected to. And that was clear in this data, not only in the long term, but also in a shorter term. What was really fun is to hear church leaders talk about the really hard work that they had been doing about clarifying their identity and trying to listen and discern where God would have them go. But it wasn't like a strategic plan that said, now here's step four, five, six, and seven, but it was directions that were set. And that direction allowed them in the moment of COVID to pivot, to do some jazz around whatever that area was. I'll use an example. I'm serving in a congregation right now that has done two experiments on their new identity, some values that they have lifted up around engaging community. So we did one experiment right away out of engaging calling teams to call people once a week and listened into where people were and kind of kept in touch that way. And then this summer felt like there was a time to do a different type of experiment. So that morphed into small groups that were uh, worshiping online or a few that were worshiping together in the church. We had to launch them quickly. They, we knew they were half-baked and we said, we need to learn from these. And with that, people that participated gave us feedback. They saw us adapt with it. And now we are looking back and saying, what do we have learned as we look to the future? So part of the piece here is that these experiments, these promising innovations come from other work and build on other work that has been done, but not in a rigid way. So I love this idea that part of what every congregation has to pay attention to is the idea of doing experiments on the margins. We all want to do experiments, but the problem is that sometimes we in the church decide that we're going to announce and make our rookie mistakes in public. So let me give you an example to explain what I mean. Uh, When I wanted to teach my daughter driving, one of the things that I did is I went to the church parking lot when no one was around and we practiced driving and it was safe to make mistakes. But let's say I wanted to support her. And so what I did is I built a grandstand in the parking lot and I invited all of her friends and all the church and they made banners and posters and they had chants and they watched her learning how to drive. Would she feel more supported? Of course not. She would feel like there was so much pressure that it would be impossible for her to learn. But that's exactly what we do in the church. We decide we're going to do something new. And so we announce it in advance, maybe with theme music and a logo, and we do all this stuff, and we say, come watch us make our rookie mistakes, and we make our rookie mistakes, and everybody said, oh, that didn't work, and we move on to something else. It would be like if we had, you know, Apollo 1 or 2 or 3, and they'd say, ah, let's cancel those because we didn't actually make it to the moon. Um, No, we have to recognize that there are milestones that we have to meet. If we were a restaurant, one of the things that we would do is we have what's called a a soft opening. They spend a couple of months getting the kinks out, and then they have the grand opening. But we in the church do just the opposite. We invite everyone to come and see our rookie mistakes. So if we're going to try stuff, we should do it on the margins, learn from it, and then once we get it right, then we can bring it into prime time. Thanks, Scott. Our last theme is promising innovation has the potential for creating an ecology of innovation. 35% of the ones listed 
of the 170 some were doing multiple experiments at the same time. And I think one of the things that tells me is that there's energy and momentum that we learn how to do experiments. We learn how to learn from these times. We learned how to be agile and we remember why are we doing this? This is for the sake of sharing the gospel in the world. This is for the sake of loving God and loving our neighbor. This is not about the form of the practices, but it's about our calling that we have. And I think, Scott, this gets back to what you said earlier about uh, it, innovation is not an add-on. It gets integrated into who we see ourselves to be. So I love your phrase, ecology of innovation, because one of the things that it suggests is that it's not like a assembly line where we can put in raw materials and get out a predictable guaranteed result. It's something that's got to grow organically. And one of the things that teaches us is that we have to prepare the soil. Oftentimes people aren't ready for innovation. Think of it this way. If I went to my doctor and my doctor says to me, I've got good news for you. The kind of cancer that you have is very treatable and a year from now you should be just fine. Is that good news or bad news? Well, it depends on whether I knew if I had cancer before. If I'd come with for four or five meetings and we were struggling and we're trying to figure out what was wrong with me and what kind of cancer I had, the good news is, yes, this is treatable. But if I didn't know I had cancer and I just walked into the doctor's office and he said, here's the solution to a problem you didn't know you had, I would experience that as bad news. Oftentimes, we as leaders want to present our people with the solution to a problem they didn't know that they had. And instead of seeing that as good news, they experience that as deeply disconcerting because they didn't know they had the problem. We have to often cultivate the soil so that they're ready to recognize that it's time for innovation and that it's time for us to try these multiple uh, experiments on the margins. And only then are our people ready for us to innovate together. The point here is is that if we have an ecology of innovation, one of the things we're going to have to do is to prepare the soil. Well, thanks, Scott and Louise. It's been a great conversation about what is Christian innovation and then five themes about what makes for promising innovation in this time, in this place. Next week, we are going to wrap up and say goodbye to this first season of Pivot. And so until then, we wish you well. Thanks for joining us for this episode of our Pivot Podcast. For more leadership resources from LEAD, you can go to waytolead.org, or from Faith LEAD, go to faithlead.luthersem.edu.